Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Edward Watts about his history of the downfall of the Roman Republic entitled Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. Edward, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, So I'm a professor of Roman and Byzantine history at UC San Diego. Um, I've been working on topics related to Roman Byzantium for about the past 15 years. Uh, And the project that we're talking about now is something that grew out of concerns that I was having um, about the political dynamics in the United States. And in the context of teaching Roman history, and especially the history of the Roman Republic, it became very clear to me that there's quite a bit that we can appreciate about what's going on in the world around us right now by turning to uh, the Roman Republic, which is the the model on which the United States Constitution was essentially crafted. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that a bit. What was the Roman Republic like, and in in what ways does it inspire, uh, did it inspire uh, the Republic in which we live today? So the, the basic idea around which the Roman Republic operated was creating a structure through which the voices of individual people were channeled um, through representatives, and the political structure was one designed to encourage compromise instead of conflict. Uh, and so what that meant in practice was that the Republic had quite a few mechanisms by which people could, in essence, um, shut down political decision-making until a compromise was reached. Uh, and what that meant was that the Republic um, was set up around the year 509 BC. And there were various iterations of the Republic where the Republic would face a crisis in, say, the 5th century or 4th century or even into the 3rd century BC. uh, And things would basically shut down for a while. And the conflict would play out in a political way um, so that unlike a lot of ancient societies where political conflict would result in violence, uh, in the Roman context, the state would essentially sort of freeze up until the people who were arguing could reach some sort of a consensus. And what that meant was the Roman Republic was was free of the political violence that you see in most other ancient city-states and ancient um, polities uh, because it had this really robust mechanism for promoting compromise and consensus when disagreements broke out. Um, and this, in some ways, um, inspired the founders of the U.S., the founders of the United States. Um, many of them had read a political theorist and historian named Polybius, who was writing about the strengths of the Roman Republic and uh, created uh, this sort of or crafted the argument that there was a sort of set of system of checks and balances and a kind of balance of powers between different elements of the Republic that made it uniquely stable and strong. Um, and this is something that quite obviously influenced what the founding fathers of the United States did in creating three system, three branches of government in a system designed to balance um, the powers of each with checks that prevented them from dominating each other. And yet you make the point clear when you open your book by talking about uh, the first emperor, Augustus, and his response to challenges that uh, he was facing in the at the end of the first century BC, I was wondering if you could maybe explain where does that process begin, where those those institutions begin to fail, and 
and, 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 and why is it that they were not successful in responding to the problems when they had been so successful in, their, in, in dealing with political crises for hundreds of years? Uh, so the, the system had essentially seized up at the time of Augustus. Um, and the, the great benefit that Augustus had, I suppose, if it is a benefit, was that the republic that had worked so well for hundreds of years had begun to degenerate in the second century BC. And the, the most immediate sort of uh, result of that degeneration was a, a development or an emergence of political violence in Rome that ultimately, over the course of about a century, led Romans to feel that the Republic no longer was capable of protecting their lives and their property. And at the end of a, a civil war in which Augustus prevailed over Mark Antony, um, Augustus was able to make a sort of rhetorical move that also was substantially supported by the reality in the world, um, that by sort of trading the political freedom that Romans had under the Republic for a kind of, this was autocratic freedom, um, where they gave political authority to Augustus. In exchange, Augustus would promise them security in their property and in their lives. Um, but this, is, this would have been something that would have horrified Romans even a generation before, and, and did horrify Romans even a generation before. Um, it took a, a really profound and, and long period of social breakdown to make Romans prepared to accept what Augustus was offering. Uh, but Augustus's, I suppose, insight was um, the sense that Romans now were prepared to do this in a way that they hadn't been for 500 years. So when do you see the, uh, or where do you see the origins of that breakdown and uh, why was the, uh, how, when did that system of checks and balances first start to fail? In a sense, I think Rome was a victim of its own success. Um, the Republic coming out of the, the last big crisis that it faced in the early third century um, was an incredibly dynamic thing. Uh, it was able to militarily mobilize large numbers of, of forces, large numbers of citizens who were willing to fight wars on its behalf. It was able to incorporate people from um, conquered territories into that citizen base and make them identify meaningfully with what the Republic was doing. And uh, as the third century progressed, what Rome was able to do was first dominate the Italian peninsula. And then after the uh, two wars with Carthage, uh, create a kind of Mediterranean, the beginnings of a Mediterranean wide empire that grew very quickly in the last decades of the third century, and then especially in the first half of the second century. And as Rome expanded that quickly, um, the balance within Roman politics and within Roman political life began to shift. And uh, there are a couple of, of prominent or important sort of shifts that occurred. Um, one of them is financial and the other is, is political. But as Rome is developing a Mediterranean-wide empire, it's also developing a very sophisticated, um, basically financial sector, uh, in which loans were made and then sold again, um, in the way that, say, the U.S. has done with, or did with subprime mortgages, um, where loans sort of would be sold multiple times through the financial system, creating kind of uh, paper current, creating kind of a 
money that exists on paper but doesn't exist in physical form. And different people had varying access to that sort of finance. Uh, and some of the elites who had participated in the conversations that made Rome particularly stable in the third century were getting outcompeted by people who better understood how to monetize um, their resources and, and develop wealth through this financial sector. So by the middle of the second century, you have a, a dramatic wealth gap begin to open up in, in uh, Rome and in Italy. And this creates a series of political tensions um, because elites who have been able to participate in political decision making are getting essentially outgunned by people with a lot more money than they do, than, than they possess. Um, and regular people are also getting sort of squeezed economically. Uh, and this creates a kind of political crisis as you move into the 130s, um, caused in large part by some of the same factors that, you know, that we see unfolding in the world now. Um, a, a dramatic gap opening up very quickly between the wealthiest people and everyone else in society. One of the things that you do in the book that uh, I, I found very helpful is you also explain how for a, uh, a lot of these people, the office holding was not just about power, it was also about status. And I, I thought that was very interesting, this notion that it was not, you know, that definitely control mattered, but so did that honor and losing out on the opportunity to possess that honor was something that a lot of these older elites just simply couldn't tolerate. Yeah, this is an important point. Um, in Rome, in particular, there is a notion that elite Romans need to serve the Republic. And the, the highest sort of thing that an elite Roman can achieve is honor through public service. Um, and this is a, a guiding principle of the Republic um, into the early third century, where you even have a moment in um, the late 280s where uh, King Pyrrhus of Epirus invades southern Italy and essentially tries to buy support from Roman elites. And, and they, even though they're relatively poor, refuse to accept his gifts or his money uh, because it, it's in a sense without value in the Roman social context. Um, office holding and honorable service have tremendous value for elites. And if, as you move into the second century, um, members of elite families that had seen many generations occupy the highest offices in the Roman state, uh, no longer able to do this, this becomes a really serious crisis for them as individuals, but also for their entire families. Uh, and they feel compelled to do whatever they can to basically measure up to the standards that previous generations had set. So you describe how in the second century you start to see these political outsiders playing a role. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon who some of these key outsiders were and how it was that they were, in effect, changing Roman politics. Yeah, and there in the second century, there's really sort of two groups of these people. Um, one group is um, probably best exemplified by the Gracchi, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus. Um, these are two brothers who are from an elite family, very well plugged into the sort of elite establishment of the second century Roman Republic. Um, but because of political gamesmanship, um, they get kind of marginalized. And Tiberius Gracchus, who's the older of the two, 
decides in essence to to promote himself as a figure who um, is essentially a populist running against the corrupt elite establishment uh, and does this in a way that sort of intimates the possibility of violence. Um, he plays at the margins of what's politically tolerable and what's constitutional. And he basically incites a, a very sort of significant degree of fear uh, that he doesn't actually value the, the basic uh, mechanisms by which the Republic functioned and ends up getting assassinated. Um, and that's one group, you know, the, the elites who are in essence feeling like they can't measure up to um, the standards that their families accept, expect them to measure up to. They can't hold the offices that they uh, feel they ought to hold. Um, and they start playing at the margins to build political support in ways that allow them to get around some of the systemic issues that are preventing them from holding the offices they want. Um, another group is is exemplified by the um, the figure Gaius Marius, who is a um, he's not an elite. He comes from a family that is wealthy, but they have never been in the Senate. Um, they've certainly never held the highest office in Rome, the consulship. And uh, Marius uses this kind of populist gamesmanship uh, to take advantage of a moment where there is. Uh, significant um, discontent about the way that the entrenched elites have been running the state. Marius presents himself as a reformer, a populist reformer, and he sort of um, shoulders his way into the political establishment and into the consulship by running as this kind of outsider candidate. Um, in both cases, I think that the motivations are pretty cynical and, and in some ways transparently cynical. Um, once Marius is in a position of authority, his main goal seems to be to sort of cement um, his place in the political establishment. And I think if the Gracchi had not been assassinated, they probably would have made a transition like that also. That raises an interesting question as to uh, the, the flexibility of the system. Why was that? Uh, was it just the wealth that was... Uh, basically straining that flexibility or uh, were there other factors as well? Uh, there's an interesting demographic problem that Rome faces as you move from the second, you move from the third century into the second century. Um, the Punic Wars and especially Hannibal's invasion of Italy uh, were brutally destructive. Um, the Roman population is mobilized at, you know, almost its full capacity for the better part of almost two decades against Hannibal. And much of the fighting takes place in Italy, which leads to a destruction of cropland and a lot of casualties. Um, and Rome as a polity uh, would not, and probably in the context of Hannibal's invasion, could not have stopped fighting until they win. Uh, and so what that means is um, when Rome emerges from the Second Punic War, there's actually a need to repopulate Italy quite quickly. And there's a demographic change in which people start having more children and they start having children at a younger age. Uh, what that means as you have the first generation of, of a sort of baby boom after the Punic War is um, Italy very quickly recovers economically from the devastation of the Punic War. Um, land is reapportioned. 
um, these new people, these new children are able to find work. They're able to find um, ways to produce economically. And, and Rome, of course, is able then to bring them into the military. Uh, but as Italy kind of is repopulated back to its third century level, the demographic changes don't sort of revert back to what they had been um, in, say, the mid third century. And so by the second generation after the Punic Wars, um, the, there's a degree of overpopulation in Italy. And the effect that one has um, in for that second generation is one in which the children look around and realize that they don't have the same economic prospects as their parents do or as their parents did. And families begin to recognize that they there's only a finite amount of wealth and it's now going to be distributed among a lot more children. Uh, and this is something that figures like Tiberius Gracchus and later Gaius Marius are able to um, capitalize upon. And it's not that these Italian populations are incredibly poor, but they're relatively poor. You know, the, there's a sense among the second and third generations after the Second Punic War that they're doing worse than their parents were doing. Um, and at the same time, they see these super elites making quite a bit of money through finance. And so there's something that feels inherently unfair about a, a polity in which most citizens are probably doing worse than their um, parents were doing. Um, but some people are doing really, really well, you know, better than anyone had ever been doing in the Roman context. And so I think that that's, a, that's another feature um, that explains some of the tension that we begin to see in the middle part of the, of the second century. So um, how does that tension play out as the, uh, as the, um, as the second uh, century comes to an end? I mean, to what degree, uh, how are these uh, leaders responding to the, the, the crisis? What are they proposing to do? And, and how does that play out? Um, so there are a series of there are a series of responses, and in a sense, they come eventually to form a kind of playbook. Um, the first response in the 130s uh, is you know, Tiberius Gracchus's response, which is to propose a land reform in which some of the public lands that belong to the Roman state um, but have been leased out to landholders who theoretically pay a rent to hold this land. Um, Tiberius Gracchus proposes that this land should be divided and given to people who don't have any land. You know, the, the children of that um, Second Punic War baby boom. And in effect, this was, uh, you know, this, this wouldn't have changed the dynamic dramatically. You know, at, if all of the public land that belonged to the Roman Republic was redistributed, they might have housed 30,000 families. And there are multiple millions of people in Italy. So this isn't going to make a dramatic and substantial change. It's not going to you know, solve the problem of relative wealth inequality, but it's a gesture. And it's a gesture that alarms the wealthy um, because it is in essence sort of establishing a potential principle that wealth can be taken away and redistributed to people on the basis of, of not very much, you know, on the basis of the political ambitions of somebody who's proposing it. But this idea of land commissions and land redistributions, once it's in the system, it's something that continues to come back. Um, Julius Caesar, for example, almost 80 years after this, um, will do something similar. 
you know, proposed land redistribution of public lands to um, poor people. And Augustus will do something similar with his, his military veterans. Um, and so that's one part of the playbook that starts in the 130s and, and is just kind of always there to be used as a demagogue tool. Um, another aspect is the establishment of a, a, a mechanism to give reduced price grain, namely wheat, to the urban population of Roman citizens. Um, and this is something that's introduced in the 120s. It, it, again, is a political football that bounces back and forth for much of the rest of the the late Republic. Um, And the final sort of aspect of this is something that Marius does, where he proposes um, an end to a a Roman policy that had held, uh, in essence, you could not serve in the military if you didn't possess a certain amount of property. And as you have this demographic um, shift following the Second Punic War and then two and three generations later, um, the amount of property that families possess decreases as the number of children grows and the property gets divided among heirs. Eventually, large numbers of Roman citizens are falling below this property qualification. And what Marius decides to do is to enroll his in his army people who do not meet the property qualification and basically implicitly promise that if they serve well, they'll be rewarded ultimately with land. Uh, and that's a mechanism that, that also kind of enters into Roman political life under Marius around the year 100 and stays there through Augustus. You also explain uh, another aspect of, of uh, how of the changing dynamic under Marius, which is how in previous generations, these soldiers were loyal to the Republic and how with Marius, you start to see these soldiers becoming loyal to him and how that creates a power shift in terms of the dynamics in the Republic itself. Yeah. And that's a profound shift. Um, and it's one that I think was not appreciated at that time, but when Marius has soldiers that he's personally recruited and, and to whom he has sort of implicitly promised rewards, he's on the hook for those rewards. Um, and if Marius tries to deliver those rewards, but he's blocked because elements of the Republic feel like this is an inappropriate thing to do, in some on some level, the Republic permits that, right? Because someone wants to do something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be done. Uh, and in the traditional way the Republic works, Marius would go forward and people would either say yes or no, or we need to come up with a compromise and it would get stalled until this was resolved somehow. Uh, but if you have armed men or men who can access arms very quickly, uh, who want a certain outcome, you don't have a compromise. You don't have the mechanism to reach a compromise without coercion. And I don't think even Marius appreciated that this construction of an army of basically relatively poor individuals who depend on Marius ultimately in getting them rewards, uh, how this would create a kind of coercive effect within the Republic that ultimately would potentially um, cause people to either march their armies on Rome or bring their troops into Rome to try to exert pressure to make political decisions um, that were not reached through consensus, but were instead reached through threats and coercion. And so, Go yeah. Ahead. I was going to say, and it didn't take long for that next development to take place. It took place under Sulla. Yeah, uh, it doesn't take long at all. Um, what happens under Sulla is um, in in the 80s, there is a a basic breakdown in the way that the Roman structure had worked. And there's a, a, 
what amounts to a sort of civil war within Italy between Roman citizens and Roman allies who were not citizens. Um, and this creates a lot of, of sort of tension within the Roman Republic. Uh, and Sulla was one of the more, more successful generals in this conflict. But while this conflict, while Rome was sort of otherwise occupied with this conflict, a war breaks out in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and Sulla is given a command to go and fight this war as you know the next step in his political career. Uh, and Marius, who at this point has been in retirement and came out of retirement to fight in this, this social war, um, Marius decides that he doesn't want Sulla to have this command. And one of his allies, in essence, goes in and overrides the decision to have Sulla voted this command. Um, and Sulla then goes to his army and announces to his army that this lucrative command that would have allowed his army to acquire a lot of, of wealth quite quickly, um, that it's been stripped from both Sulla and, and from them. And this is enough to convince the army to march on the city of Rome and attack the political infrastructure that had stripped Sulla of the command. And in essence, have Sulla imposed as commander by sort of force of arms. And the reason they're willing to do this is because their loyalty is to Sulla, who is ultimately going to be responsible for getting them the rewards for their service that they feel they deserve. So Sola does this, and it is a you know it really is a profound step. And as you explain in the book, he is aware of it and tries to construct something that might you know succeed some of the old ways, which are are now increasingly obsolete. And yet, as you explain, what he devises doesn't really last very long. What what was it that he was trying to do to fix some of the republic's problems, and and why didn't it survive? Uh, so what Sulla was able to do was frame himself as a kind of conservative reformist. Um, and so what he did was he, in essence, described his attack on the city of Rome and ultimately, you know, the unleashing of a civil war that, that ends um, after more or less sort of five years of back and forth. Um, Sulla was able to frame that as a defense of sort of conservative Republican values against populists who are demagoguing and um, cynically exploiting elements of the Republic to sort of advance their own careers. And so what Sulla proposes is uh, an elimination of a lot of the prerogatives that made that possible. Um, one of the offices that would, was particularly prone to being used by demagogues was a position called the Tribune of the Plebs. Uh, this was an office that was set up in the first big crisis of the Republic as a voice for the people who were not hereditary elites in the Roman state. Um, the Roman hereditary elites are the patricians. Uh, and when the Republic was first set up, the only people allowed to make decisions in the Republic were patricians. Um, this doesn't even last a generation. And within a generation, wealthy, prominent plebeians have stepped out uh, and said, in essence, we need to create an office that can represent our views as well. But what the Tribune um, ultimately becomes for a lot of politicians is a kind of stepping stone where you build your political profile as a Tribune and then you run for some of the higher uh, senatorial offices like Praetor or ultimately Consul. And what Sulla saw, and Sulla was kind of right in seeing this, 
was a lot of the the most sort of divisive tribunes of the late second century and early first century had been figures who ran as tribune to try to basically poke their fingers in the eyes of the elites in order to build a profile so they could then have popular support when they ran for higher office. And so one thing that Sulla does is he basically strips the tribunate of, of any ability to sort of serve as a launching pad for future political careers. Um, but in doing this, what Sulla kind of also creates is a dynamic whereby regular people don't feel like they have a voice in how the republic is working. And so this ultimately is not going to be sustainable. Another thing that Sulla does is uh, removes some of the, you know, the, the grain dole and some of the other support programs that the populist tribunes have put in place. Um, and in the end, what Sulla does is he, after he wins the civil war, he holds dictatorship, which is a, an office in the Republic that is supposed to be a temporary office. He holds this for a couple of years and then he steps down and retires. And this, this step is what ultimately clearly dooms Sulla's reforms. Um, these were not reforms that were particularly popular. I think most people felt like these reforms had negative consequences for the general sort of ability of the Republic to meet the needs of its citizens. And once Sulla retires, um, there's no sort of coercive force to protect these reforms and make people become accustomed to them being in place. And so the, the sort of uh, conditions under which a new political system can be established tend to be you have to have popular support for it, or if you're going to use coercion, you have to have coercive force in place for long enough that people basically grow up in that system and become accustomed to it working and um, don't really have a familiarity with anything else. It becomes sort of entrenched through habituation. The new and Sola, yeah, and Sola did none of those things. Um, and so the system doesn't actually survive in the way Sula wanted it to survive for even 10 years. So what then follows after the, the, the breakdown of the Solon reforms? Uh, I think what's interesting is the generation of people who were sort of young men when the civil wars break out uh, were traumatized by this. And so you have figures who emerge as prominent figures in, say, the late 70s BC or the 60s BC, who feel very, very strongly that even if they could sort of take advantage of the breakdown of the system, they don't want to um, because they know the trauma that civil war unleashed and they don't want to be responsible for doing this. Um, and so the, the, the main, most prominent figure like this is Pompey the Great. Um, a figure who is probably the greatest commander of the 70s and 60s and one of the greatest commanders in Roman history. Uh, at multiple moments, Pompey could have brought an army and marched on Rome and done what Sulla had done. And Pompey does not want to do that. Um, Pompey you know, felt very strongly that the civil war and the conditions that, that Sulla had created by marching on Rome were so horrible that he didn't want to repeat this. And so what you have is this kind of slow motion breakdown of the Sullen system where it becomes clear it's not working. Um, it becomes clear that the structures and the, the strictures that Sulla had put in place um, functionally were not solving problems. They were instead creating significant problems. Uh, but nobody really feels comfortable 
overthrowing the Solon system. Instead, there's tinkering with it in the in the seventies, and then by the sixties, there's you know clear dysfunction within it, um, but a sort of unwillingness to think about can you know strong alternatives that might make the state function better. Um, but the main sort of consensus is still one in which violence should largely be avoided. Um, and when it's possible, compromise should, should be found. So it sounds like they're trying to find a way that there's recognition that change is necessary at the same time, though, they don't want to sacrifice the fundamental values of the of the republic. Yeah, there's a there's a clear I think um, there's a an argument that I think is a brilliant argument made by the historian Harriet Flower, where she says, in essence, look, the republic ends with Sulla, and there's something that is a republic after Sulla, but it doesn't have this institutional integrity um, that the old republic had. And so there's a sort of struggling with trying to figure out how after Scylla you can, you can make this work. There's no one who doesn't want a republic. Um, there is, you know, there are occasional commanders who try to sort of hint at overthrowing the republic, but there's no one who really wants this to happen who's a mainstream politician. Everybody wants the republic to work. Um, but there is a, there's a sense that I think politics is drifting as you get into the mid to late sixties. Um, and people have different ideas about what needs to be done to stop that drift and kind of stabilize things so that the Republic can continue. Who are the key figures involved in that, uh, in that effort to find a resolution? Uh, so there, these are some of the most famous names in Roman politics. Um, these are the figures that probably everyone has heard of Pompey, the great Julius Caesar, um, Cicero, and Cato uh, are, are four of the main figures. And then you add into this uh, a man named uh, Crassus, who is the richest man in the history of Rome at this point. Um, and what you see in the 60s is each of them has a sort of a, a, a different view of how you stabilize the Republic. Um, in, in Cato's view, uh, the Republic is something that has to basically embrace elite values, and in particular, a kind of public morality. Um, and Cato is a, a sort of self-appointed guardian of this morality. But what Cato, in essence, decides is any policy that he feels um, will undermine the integrity of the Republic must be wholeheartedly opposed. Not even, you know, no compromise found, but it just must be opposed. And this leads to some really sort of disastrously short-sighted decisions. Um, where, for example, Pompey comes back having conquered much of what's now the Middle East, and Cato refuses to allow votes um, recognizing the political settlements and the annexations that Pompey has made of you know, significant territory, you know, much of what's now modern Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, Cato refuses to allow even a vote to approve this for three years, leaving millions of people in limbo. Um, he refuses to allow a vote to give sort of rewards to Pompey soldiers, even though they have served quite honorably. Um, and so, you know, Cato, in a sense, is is motivated by a view of how to save the Republic. But it's a very specific view, and it doesn't actually um, work from the place of compromise that the Republic had traditionally worked from. 
Um, and, you know, on the opposite side of this is Caesar, who uh, by the time Caesar becomes prominent around the year 60, um, Caesar is operating from an idea that there are significant problems that need to be addressed. <clears throat> and the Republic, with the sort of obstruction that Cato is putting in place, is not addressing these problems. And the Republic, frankly, cannot be saved if it's not meeting the needs of the people who, who live under it. And so Caesar's view is in some ways diametrically opposed to Cato's view, but the place they're coming from is in, it's very similar. You know, both of them want a republic that works in the way they think a republic ought to work, um, but they're not finding a common ground where they can work together to sort of compromise and bridge the differences between what policies they think actually help the republic get better. So... Is it the fact that Caesar has access to military force that allows him to ultimately, so to speak, win this argument? Or are there other factors at play as well? Uh, the, uh, the thing that initially gets Caesar to win this argument, and the argument is one that will go on for the 50s and into the 40s. But the thing that gets Caesar to win this argument in the 60s is Caesar, in essence, is able to go um, run for the consulship and do so on the platform of there are problems that need to be solved and we're not capable of solving them unless I'm empowered to do so. Uh, and this is an extremely popular platform. But Caesar also is an incredibly charismatic figure who understands personalities very well also. Um, and so what Caesar recognizes when he's running for consul in the year 60 is he probably could win as an individual candidate, but he can be much more effective if he governs by bringing together in an alliance some of the other people who, who feel like they are being blocked by especially Cato's um, actions. And so Caesar creates an alliance, an electoral alliance with Pompey and Crassus. Pompey is the most successful general in Rome. Crassus is the richest person in Rome. And, Cicero, and Caesar also appeals to Cicero, who is um, in some ways the most accomplished rhetorician, and so a great sort of public voice for policies. Um, Cicero ultimately doesn't join this alliance, but with Pompey's backing and with Crassus's backing, Caesar is able to create an electoral alliance that gets him elected, and then once he's in power, he's able to mobilize both, Caesar, both Crassus and Pompey uh, to advocate for the policies that Caesar wants to put in place. And so Caesar's able to, to break this gridlock that Pompey or that uh, Crassus and Pompey had sort of suffered under Cato. Um, he's able to break Cato's gridlock because he has tremendous popular support and because he has very significant allies. Um, it, eventually, Cato will continue to play these games, you know, through the 50s, Cato will continue to play these games. And um, as Caesar sort of emerges from the consulship and moves to take an army um, to conquer what's now sort of France, Belgium, parts of Switzerland, um, it, Cato will continue to block Caesar's, Caesar's goals. And this, at that point, eventually Caesar will use military force against Cato. Um, and Cato's sort of allies. But the initial sort of breaking point of the sort of gridlock of the 60s is a politician who's capable of mobilizing popular disaffection with this gridlock uh, and creating a political sort of movement to work against it. Uh, but the real danger of what Caesar does in 
59, you know, following the election in 60. The real danger of what Caesar does there is uh, that people were so frustrated with the gridlock that they were willing to tolerate uh, unconstitutional and threatening actions by Caesar because they were simply frustrated that nothing was happening. The system is failing us, so therefore we have to consider more radical actions in order to solve those problems, in essence. Exactly, exactly. There, um, there are problems in the 60s. These are ongoing problems. They're significant problems. Nothing is getting done. Here's somebody who can get something done. And if he's going to do it in a way that's unconventional or unproductive um, or, you know, in the long term, not particularly healthy for the republic, it's actually, we're okay with that because we need something to be done. I mean, there's a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and so in the same way that Cato is short-sighted in blocking these things on the sort of theoretical principles of what he thinks the republic should be, Caesar is equally short-sighted in, in essence, throwing his hands up and saying, I have the power to change this and I'm just going to change it. But in the end, he doesn't have that power politically. You, you describe how, for example, his alliance with, with, with Pompey uh, is, is very strained over time and how those two can't get along. And, of course, Crassus uh, you know, goes you know, uh, also – there's a, basically a, how, how these personalities inhibit their ability to achieve this goal that they had agreed upon at one point. Yeah, and that's that's the other problem. Once you break down the standards um, through which decision making can be made, any conflict, even if it's a conflict between people who were once allies, uh, it doesn't have a political framework in which you can solve it. Um, and so, what ends up happening is the electoral alliance that Pompey and Crassus and Caesar make. This endures for a very long time. You know, they they made an agreement to work together for five years. Um, Caesar is given a command in Gaul where he goes and, you know, basically conquers a, a huge amount of territory and gets tremendously wealthy. Um, and they renew the electoral alliance, even while Caesar is doing this. Uh, but what ends up happening is as time passes, Caesar is acquiring more and more renown and fame for his success in Gaul. Pompey is basically staying in Rome and not, you know, he's sort of, he feels like his star is dimming. Um, and he becomes a little sort of concerned that Caesar might be um, becoming more prominent than Pompey as a great military commander. And, you know, that's a, a sort of natural thing that can happen and in a, a functional political situation. Those kinds of rivalries are things that can play out and they don't need to become violent. And usually they don't become violent. Uh, but as you move through the 50s, um, People like Cato kind of egg Pompey on, um, and the tension with Caesar becomes much more pronounced. And the, the catalyzing factor for this was uh, the death of Crassus, where Crassus had served as a sort of, in, in a way, a kind of third figure who made sure that Pompey and Caesar, or even Pompey and Crassus, didn't start fighting, you know, because there was always someone who could balance this out. And when Crassus dies, there's no one who can kind of moderate this. Um, and so as the 50s progress, the tension between Caesar and Pompey becomes much more pronounced. Uh, and as you move into the 40s, figures um, within the political structure in Rome 
begin to see as advantageous to their sort of own individual short-term interests to sort of egg Caesar on against Pompey and to egg Pompey on against Caesar. And they promote a conflict um, that cannot ultimately be solved politically because the political structures are too weak to have two powerful figures like this come together and find a compromise. Uh, and this results in civil war. That, that, that's what I was uh, – as we as uh, I was reading your book and I was, we were getting through this about how the degree to which institutions and, 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 and customs are increasingly being uh, supplanted by personalities. And, and, and I was thinking about how we think about that dynamic in Roman history and you already alluded to it when you were talking about how these are the names we know. And in part, we know them because by that point, it did become about the people and much less about the, uh, about the institutional system. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, you know, if, if you go back to the the early third century Roman Republic, what you have are very strong institutional um, checks on what individuals can do. Um, and all of the rewards that individuals value in this sort of early third century Roman Republic, the Republic collectively bestows on them. And so there is actually, you know, there's not the ability to generate something in your own self-interest that the Republic does not sort of provide you with. And so you have to work within its structure and you have to reach a sort of, you have to work towards consensus or you're not going to get what you want. And by the first century, the mechanisms that promote consensus have essentially broken down so much um, that policies become individualized, outcomes become individualized, and the idea that the republic provides a structure that bestows the rewards you want is completely antiquated. And so these battles of personalities become so pronounced as you move into the sort of dysfunction of the 50s and 40s BC. Uh, the republic cannot control the individual. And the other side of that is the Republic also cannot protect the individual. And so, you know, in the third century, if you throw in to a political fight and you lose, you lose face, you might lose some prestige, you might lose some status, but you don't die and you don't lose your property. You know, you move on um, because the Republic basically protects the winners and the losers from retribution. The Republic in the first century BC can't do this. And so by the time you get into the 50s, um, and especially the civil war with Caesar and Pompey, you, you are not protected if you lose a political conflict. In fact, you're likely to die if you lose a political conflict. And the conflict um, between Caesar and Pompey is such that when Caesar decides to cross the Rubicon and effectively announce his break with the Republic by leading an army into Italy... Caesar makes this decision because it was clear to Caesar if he didn't, he would die. And that, of course, not only does that increase the stakes, it means that at no point are you going to find any sort of compromise. It will only end with the death of one man or the other. Yeah, that's correct. Um, <clears throat> and that's how that civil war plays out. Um, Caesar wins the civil war with Pompey dying. And Caesar, you know, the... the the thing that is sort of remarkable about Caesar, if you take it out of context, is uh, the reputation that Caesar has for pardoning his enemies, which seems so idiosyncratic. You know, Sulla didn't pardon his enemies. Um, you know, Sulla actually did horrible things to his enemies to the point where when Sulla actually took uh, the city of Rome for good, 
he had the Senate meet um, within earshot of the place where he was massacring and torturing 15,000 prisoners of war. And Caesar pardons anyone who comes to him and asks for pardon. And if they go then and return to the fight, Caesar will not pardon them a second time. But anyone who engages in the civil conflict against him and asks for pardon, Caesar will pardon. And had he captured Pompey, he would have pardoned Pompey too. Um, this is so idiosyncratic, uh, but I think what is forcing Caesar to do this is Caesar was actually very, his family was very closely tied to Marius, and he saw what Sulla did to the people who were close to Marius. And Caesar's own property was seized by Sulla because of the connection that Caesar had with Marius. Um, and so I think Caesar's idea was the only way, even if I win this civil war, the only way we get back to something that is even remotely functional is if I do not do what Sulla did and massacre my opponents, but instead try to find a way to reintegrate them. Was that his only uh, solution to the problems that the Republic was having by this point? Or did he, was he also, like Sulla, trying to push various reforms designed to uh, repair what had been broken? I think that what Caesar was trying to do was very much remake the Roman state in some new fashion that would be more functional. And I think what we have to see in, in Caesar's actions is somebody who is trying to learn from Sulla's example. Um, Caesar, there's a, a quote that I can't remember specifically offhand, but the quote is basically Caesar's troops tell him, um, if you do what's right, you will die. And if you don't do what's right, you're likely to live. Um, and by that, they mean, in essence, you know, if, if you go into Rome and you basically do what Sulla did and you create some sort of political structure and then you step down, the first thing that your opponents are going to do is have you killed. And Sulla, when Sulla steps down, is an old man. And so he lives for only like a couple of years before he ends up dying. There's no chance to enact or to exact retribution against Sulla by Sulla's opponents. He's not around long enough. But Caesar was relatively young when he wins the Civil War, and he knows if he steps down, um, the political tides will change, and he will eventually be held accountable for what he's done. And so Caesar's solution is to, in essence, um, hold power as long as he can, um, and create a, and try to find a structure where he can be the individual who's in charge of reforming the state, and he will hold that position for as long as he lives. Um, but he also recognizes that the state needs to very quickly reintegrate the people who have once opposed him. The state really cannot function if these people are, if these people continue to oppose him, or if he massacres large numbers of them. And so I think I think Caesar's policy is something that is shaped by a desire to remake. Rome and make something that is sort of stable and functional in Rome, um, but not do what Sulla did, because what Sulla did clearly did not work. Does Caesar's assassination then reflect the impossibility of that task? Uh, Caesar's assassination uh, shocked everybody. Um, what you see in the, the Roman state under Caesar's dictatorship is uh, the beginnings of what Augustus is going to realize. You know, people in Rome um, understand that, this, that Rome is stable 
only when Caesar is there and making sure that it's stable. Um, you have various financial crises and other sort of outbreaks of, of unrest that whenever Caesar is not in Italy sort of flare up. And when Caesar is there running things, it actually is functional. And so for most of the people in, in Italy, uh, Caesar's political um, position mattered a lot less than the security and stability that he's providing for them. But to the senators, and especially those people who had opposed Caesar in the Civil War, this seems intolerable. The idea that Caesar is a dictator, the idea that Caesar is ultimately in charge, and while the offices of the Republic are still continuing, they all are answerable to Caesar. Um, this is something that to someone like, say, Brutus or Cassius, this is completely unacceptable. Even though both of them literally owe their lives to Caesar's clemency, uh, they cannot accept a, a Roman political structure in which Caesar is in charge without meaningful kind of checks from anybody else. And so when Caesar's assassinated, they think that they will be greeted as liberators and that everyone in Rome will immediately sort of have, celebrate the death of this, this oppressive, tyrannical dictator. And actually what happens is most people in Rome just freak out. They, they see this as something that's profoundly destabilizing, um, something that removes the, the basic sort of security and the basic kind of structure to their lives that they saw coming back after the Civil War. And for the five days or so after Caesar's murder, it's not exactly clear what that means to people. Um, but it certainly doesn't resonate in the way that Caesar's assassins thought it would. Instead, there is... Um, a very profound sense that Rome has has lost its stabilizing force, and no one's quite clear what's going to come next. The assassination in that respect seems to speak to that uh, almost you're approaching, or if not already at that tipping point, between the those uh, people for whom the Republic is a, is a memory by which they're going to measure the circumstances they are, are existing in at that moment, and the point at which the Roman people are ready to accept the loss of some of that liberty in return for the security. Yeah, I think um, that there's a very profound moment where the Roman people finally, it crystallizes for them what this means, you know, what Caesar's death means. And it's um, when Mark Antony gives the funeral oration, and the one that Shakespeare makes absolutely famous. Um, at that moment, you know, the people are not totally sure what to make of Caesar. Brutus is making an argument, and it's an argument that still resonates. This idea that, you know, we are a free Roman people, we should not have one person in charge, that's tyranny, it's not a republic. That argument still has some resonance, but it doesn't immediately carry the day like it would have a century before. And what Antony is able to do is take out uh, things that had been voted to Caesar, honors that had been voted to Caesar, decrees made in Caesar's honor. Um, he is able to highlight for the people what Caesar actually had done, um, what Caesar had actually brought to them in Caesar's will, what Caesar's will had actually given to them. You know, he had, in an overcrowded city of a million people, given essentially public parks to the regular people of Rome, given money to the regular people of Rome. Uh, and it's only when Antony is able to do this and then display the body of Caesar filled with stab wounds and other sort of, you know, just gory sort of evidence of the, the murder and the 
the sort of horrible lack of faith of the people that Caesar had pardoned, it's only then that regular Romans kind of come around and, and realize Caesar brought something tangible. And the liberators are promising us freedom, but Caesar brought something tangible. And it's only then that people begin to sort of put it all together, that Caesar was bringing something that the Republic wasn't, and that there is a choice. Um, and they're not ready yet to, to go where, where Augustus will lead them. But it's now sort of a, a possibility. It's the point at which, in effect, the Republic clearly is not the way forward, but the question, at least as, as it has been, but the question is, what is the way forward? And that seems to resolve itself in that subsequent conflict between uh, between Mark Antony and Octavian. Yeah. Um, the Mark Antony and Octavian start out, it's a very complicated relationship, but the moment in which they sort of path back to a republic like Brutus wanted is when Mark Antony and Octavian defeat Brutus and Cassius in battle. Um, Brutus and Cassius could conceivably have brought back something like a republic. It would have been dysfunctional and it probably wouldn't have endured. Um, but something like a model of the first century post-Sullen Republic would have probably come about had they won that civil war. But once they lose, it's clear that some individual is eventually going to be in charge of the Roman state. And it's either going to be um, Octavian, who will become Augustus, um, or Mark Antony. And the question is just who and when. I'd like to bring this back to uh, the point that uh, you opened with at the start of the interview, which is in, so then what does all this, how does all this help us to, under, what lessons can we draw from this in terms of understanding the republic in which we live today and in, in republics everywhere in which uh, so many people live today? I think that the fundamental thing that Rome shows us, I mean, it shows us a couple of things. First of all, if a republic lasts for a very long time, um, it's remarkably strong until it isn't. Uh, and a republic that lasts for a very long time has the great advantage of establishing the kind of norms for political behavior. And those norms are very powerful as long as people are held to account when they violate them. A successful republic is designed to not make decisions quickly. It's designed to not make decisions solely on the basis of a narrow majority opinion. It's definitely not supposed to make decisions based on a minority opinion. Um, but what it overall is supposed to do is promote compromise and promote social stability by creating a political space in which disagreements can be hashed out without promoting conflict. Instead, agreement must be found and the state will basically not will prefer to not make a decision about an issue. Um, it will prefer to not make a decision uh, when the alternative is making a decision that has narrow support and is being thrust through on um, and being forced upon people who don't support it. What the Roman Republic also shows is when people stop policing those boundaries, the Republic starts falling apart relatively quickly. Um, those norms are really important. And the minute someone violates one of those norms and is not held to account, that in essence becomes a new norm. But if too many norms are violated, then, in, then there are no rules. You know, what, what 
Sulla put together in the 80s was a departure from how the Republic had worked, but it wasn't a radical departure. But the reason it doesn't function um, is because all the norms had been broken. You know, the Civil War had eliminated all of the kind of sense that, yeah, the Republic has certain rules that we follow. And one of those rules is political conflict is not decided through military conflict. It's decided through compromise. Once that's gone, it's very hard to get it back. Uh, and I think the thing that's profoundly frightening about the way politics has gone in the United States, but also in some of the other republics around the world, uh, what's profoundly frightening is this, this idea that our political structure is supposed to promote compromise has been forgotten. And the, the willingness of citizens to police political norms has also been forgotten. And so a political tactic that benefits my side or your side, um, we tolerate that because we are getting some short-term benefit. But this is the, the sort of the Catonian bargain, right? You get short-term benefit, but you then empower the other side to do something that is even more um, in violation of, of norms and customs. And ultimately, there will be no rules. And the ability of the, the republic to prevent violence um, starts to go away. And that's an outcome that's contrary to the very idea of what a republic should be. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Uh, the project I'm working on now is a, a project that is concerned with how the Roman Empire creates a sense of Romanness among the 60 million people living in it. Uh, and then how when the empire sort of recedes from places in Western Europe and the Middle East, this sense of Romanness changes or disappears. And so the idea is, you know, how it's the rise and fall of the Roman nation in a sense. Oh, it sounds like a fascinating project. I hope we can have you back for that. Oh, for sure. I'd love it. Uh, Edward Watts, thank you for taking some of your time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. I hope you do too.